0: Well hello everyone, it's great to welcome you here to LC17 Brompton Road site and I'm delighted that you've come to this seminar uh, on how to pick up a snake. Bear Grills isn't here today but his advice is definitely don't pick it up by the tail, we're going to come to that a little bit later on. Just as you came in, you just received this little booklet about Mind and Soul, uh, the Mind Soul Foundation. And there's just space in here for you to write your notes uh, through the session. That's for you uh, to use and you take those away uh, with you at the end of the session today. Let's just take a moment to pray as we begin. Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you for everything you're doing in the life of this conference and churches here and around the world. And we pray, Lord, that you'd lift the burden of shame on leaders in churches and businesses and households. And we pray you'd meet us by the power of your Holy Spirit to do this complex work. We know it's possible because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So we stand together in faith and hope. Teach our heads and our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I uh, landed in my first real parish uh, in northwest London in Harrow, I I came into the building as the new vicar in charge. and And I looked around, and being sort of an aesthetic kind of person, I was immediately struck by the plastic plants that were lining the windowsills, which were covered in about 10 years' worth of dust, and you could kind of slide off the top like it had snowed recently. And, and then there was the toilet smell, which was particularly bad, and people would sort of make sure they used the loo at home so they didn't have to use the loo at church. Uh, and there was all sorts of uh, posters on the walls which were actually out of date. They were advertising events that had happened a number of years previously. So I, I took it upon myself to sort of upgrade things Because people would want to come to the house of the Lord when things looked better. So I started by clearing away the plastic plants and taking down the posters and and kind of organizing things. And I started with a toilet project. I mean, it wasn't like the most faith-filled project the church had ever seen. I wasn't launching a kind of great new mission strategy. I was just trying to redo the lose. And you know, I did a pretty good job. I, I tidied the place, and I made it look pretty presentable and, and pretty clean, and, and people started to come along. But over the first six months, I, I couldn't help but not get away from this slightly damp smell. And I, I'd kind of walk into my church office and sit down and smell damp, or, or maybe I'd be on the lectern, I'm just about to preach a, a new sermon I'd written, and I'd smell damp. Or I'd be sitting in the church cafe, just about to tuck into a nice piece of cake, and I'd smell damp. Now, no matter where I went in the building, no matter what I did to try and smarten things up, something smelled damp. Now, one of my friends just said, that's just the Anglican church. <laughs> but, you know, one day, it was a rather large building, and actually had a large medical practice in part of it. It was that big. One day, I was walking around the building, and I said to my and I saw a small door, it wasn't like Alice in Wonderland. It wasn't that small. It was small enough for a person to go through. I saw a small door, and I said to myself, I am going to go through that door today. It's a radical decision. And, and I went to see the verger, and I said, I want to go in that door today. I said, oh, you don't not to go in there. No one's been in there for years. I said, that's exactly why I want to go in that door today. And I went and got the key to the padlock, and I let myself in, and I, I turned on my camera phone, and I used a sort of stick to defend myself, and I kind of worked my way through the cobwebs like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and just as I thought I was gaining ground, I, I went down a number of steps, and then there was just water just lapping at my feet. And I realized that actually the whole basement of the church was completely flooded, it was, it was flooded with a putrid gray water, I, and my, I, the, my sense of smell was overwhelmed. It was the same damp smell that I'd been chasing me around the building over the last six months, and it was emanating from this place. I, I didn't really know what to do, so I called the fire brigade, <laughs> and I said, hello, I'm the new vicar. <laughs> oh, yeah, they said. I said, yeah, our, our church basement's flooded. I said, I wonder if you could help us. And you know, they came, fortunately they weren't very busy, they came and they they stuck their pump down into the basement of the church and it took them a whole day to pump out this basement. And actually the basement turned out to be about 10 feet deep and there were two rooms in there and everything down there, all this camping equipment from the 1960s was completely rotting. And so we pumped out the basement on that day and then we cleared out all the junk and then we dried it out with heaters. And then I, I met this lovely young guy in my church who liked to pump iron. And he said to me, Will, is there anywhere I could do weights in the church? And I thought, you know what? I know exactly where you can do weights. And so we set him up with massive weights bench down in the basement. And every morning at six o'clock, he'd go down there and start pumping iron and listening to loud music. And it was a way of me knowing that the basement wasn't going to get flooded again. <laughs> you know, many of us in leadership do a reasonable job of creating an inspirational persona from which we exercise management and vision delivery. But if our basement issues haven't been addressed, we will be persistently plagued by the wafts of shame in our life and leadership. Now, our temptation will always be to build higher and higher and higher, to get away from the smell of shame. Shame that chases us in leadership. A sense that I am not enough for this If our foundations are flooded, the building only becomes more and more unstable and liable to collapse. Turning the toxic shame basement into an integrity gym makes the whole leadership tower secure. If you want to be effective in leadership, have a strong man pumping iron in your basement. But don't have a basement that's flooded with shame. St. Augustine said, lay the first foundation of humility. The higher your structure is, the deeper the foundation must be. And the journey that we're on today is a journey out of shame. It's our joint work of emptying out the basement in Jesus' name. And this isn't just something that plagues the world. This is something that plagues the church in equal measure. So many of us sit here having received the full and wonderful forgiveness of Jesus, yet we remain bound by shame, despite the fact that Jesus broke the bounds of shame when he died for us on the cross. We have to make that spiritual reality a reality in our hearts and lives. But you know, one of the reasons why shame has been undealt with is because it's so hard to pin down. It's a bit like scotch mist. There are lots of things you can do. You can say, I worry. I worry. I worry. Uh, you can say, uh, you know, I, I, I get angry. I, I get angry. I, I get angry. Uh, you can say, uh, I, I feel low. I, I feel I feel low. But I shame. Hey, I, everyone, I shame today. I shame. What, what does that mean? How, how can you describe that feeling of shame? And the reason is this, that, that shame isn't actually an emotion. Shame is an affect. That is, it, it, it controls and and influences other emotions. Uh, Tompkins wrote about the primacy of affect, which acknowledges the conducting effects of shame on the emotions in our lives. So I want you to imagine shame as the conductor of an orchestra. Here's uh, Simon Rattle. uh, He's conducting shame. It's quite a fierce photograph. He's a lovely man. But it's a fierce photograph. But it denotes this, that actually shame hasn't got a voice of its own. You cannot hear shame, you cannot do shame, but shame can influence every emotion within you. The University of Glasgow convincingly argued that there are actually only four basic emotions happy, fear, surprise, they call that one, anger, disgust, I say it quickly because it sounds like one again, and sadness. So you might actually say there are six happy, fear, surprise, anger, disgust, and sadness. But all of those emotions are affected by shame. If you break them up into the four principal instruments from woodwind, percussion, strings and brass, you understand how the conductor of shame can manipulate your feelings accordingly. If you're shame-bound, you might have a moment of incredible happiness and leadership, but then suddenly you feel like, oh, you know what, I don't really deserve this. Or you're having a wonderful time uh, with your partner and you suddenly feel, oh, I'm just disgusting. Uh, And then you might uh, find yourself wanting to express yourself in anger and then saying, no, you know what, I'm not worthy to do that. I need to mute my feelings. Shame is complex because shame manipulates the feelings that we can understand. But equally, if this is true, if we can transform our experience of shame, we can also be transformed in our experience of other emotions. My experience of shame was often that my happiness was hijacked. I would have this terrible feeling of fraudulence. I, I, I'm not worth this. I don't deserve this. I, I shouldn't be having this much fun. I, I, I'm a child of the 80s and, and, and I would be on holiday and, and I would envisage other people who were starving in another part of the world. Maybe you've joined me in that experience, particularly the, sort of the live-aid, band aids kind of season. I'd be somewhere nice. And think, oh, no, I can't really enjoy this. I, I, I don't deserve this. And we went on holiday to Sri Lanka the year after the tsunami because we wanted to be somewhere where people were suffering. It was such a paradox. And it was great to be there and to bless people. But equally, we wanted to spend our time blessing people. Now, that would be good if that was all out of blessing, but that was also out of shame. It's this feeling, actually, I don't deserve to have a break. I don't deserve anything really good from God. I'm kind of one of those ones who sneaked in through the flames, other people can enjoy the fruits of the kingdom, but not really me. Uh, uh, this isn't the sort of thing that's for me. Now, it sounds complex again, but maybe it's as simple as saying, do you feel like a fraud? Do you feel like a fraud in your leadership? This is a hard talk to give. No one's going to be going, yeah, woohoo! we'll burn the heart. Yeah, more, that's what I feel. <laughs> Thanks, Mark Mellowish. You know, this is a hard talk to give because I'm trying to reveal what many of us feel in the secret place. And if you don't feel like that, that's great. But many of you will feel like this. Oh my goodness, I feel like such a fraud. How did I ever get here? I remember when I was first ordained, I'd walk past the red tops on the way to work in the morning waiting for the story of, you know, Will Van Hart's become a priest. This is disgraceful. I was almost waiting for the kind of big reveal, you know, What was the Church of England thinking? They've appointed this guy to be a priest. The key thing about these feelings is how intractable they become, and leading to the formulation of new I am statements. I am defective, damaged, broken, a mistake, flawed. I am dirty, soiled, unclean, ugly, impure, filthy, disgusting. I am incomplete, I'm not good enough. I'm inept, I'm ineffectual, I'm useless, I'm unwanted. I'm unloved, unappreciated, uncherished. I am weak, I'm small, impotent, puny, feeble. I am bad, awful, dreadful, evil, despicable. I am pitiful, contemptible, miserable, insignificant. I am nothing, I am worthless, invisible, unnoticed, and empty. I wonder if you feel any of those things. And how those things fly in the face of a God who loves you who reverses every one of those statements over you and says that you are my cherished son or daughter. I went to the cross for you. You're of infinite worth for me. And yet we sit in church preaching our own sermons to ourselves, saying, when will you receive grace? I once went to a, a collection, a, a gathering of eminent young leaders I remember being sort of bowled over when I received the invitation. I remember thinking, oh my goodness, uh, I've received this invitation. I said to my wife, look, I've, I've received this invitation. She said, brilliant, finally, someone's recognized you. I said, no, like this is obviously a mistake. She's always sort of championing, no, it's no mistake, they not be ridiculous. They know exactly what they're doing. So I was packed off to this 24-hour retreat And I I sort of went for a prayer walk before I went in thinking, oh my goodness, this is really, you know, this is not really on. This isn't for people like me. And I stood at the back thinking, God, you know, why am I here amongst all these amazing leaders who I admire and respect? And I I kept smiling at people like I was supposed to be there. Hi, yeah, great to see you. Yeah, how's it all going? And other questions that leaders should ask. Secretly thinking, someone's going to say, um, why are you here? But you know what happened? The retreat leader began the retreat by saying, guys, can I just say, everyone in this room feels like a fraud right now. So just get over yourselves and just try and like receive from God. I remember thinking, now I've started hallucinating. Now I'm really losing it now. And I I looked around the room and I saw loads of other young leaders all nodding all saying the same thing. Yeah, I, I kind of get that. I, I get that feeling like I, I shouldn't really be here. I shouldn't really be doing this. You know, the challenge to us all is that sense that, that we don't belong. Now, uh, psychologist Bauminster and Leary's 1995 study, The Need to Belong, suggests the simplest principle. It's called the principle of belongingness. And it says that a need to belong is a fundamental human motivation, that human beings have a pervasive drive to form and maintain a minimum quality of lasting, positive, and significant interpersonal relationships. What are they really saying? You were created for connection. You were created to belong. God created you to belong in a garden that he prepared in advance for you to belong in. You began life belonging to God and you'll end life belonging to God, yet you struggle to feel your belonging. And it's this strong desire to belong that inversely charges our fear of not belonging. Uh, This isn't just a psychological challenge, it's a spiritual challenge. You see, the shame snake in the garden casts doubt on the belonging of the first humans and it continues to sow the seed of insecurities in our lives today we ask the questions like, do I really belong in this family? Do I really belong in, in this church? Do I really belong in this community? Do I really belong at this conference? It's amazing how many people I meet at conferences like LC who say things like, yeah, I'm not really a leader, but I came with my friend. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, I mean, my friend is a really great leader and I just, I've come to support them today. And you know what I'm thinking? No, you are the leader you've come here because you're a leader. You just need to know that you're a leader. You need to know that you belong in the leadership that God has ordained for you. And I see a revolution, a revival in the church when the leaders of the church truly believe that they're called to lead the church that God's placed and entrusted in their hands. Because when we know that we are called, when we know that we belong in our place of calling, that's where the real power comes. And in your area of leadership, in your area of work or ministry, when you know you really belong there, that's when you can be really dangerous for the kingdom of God. That's when you'll really fly when you know that your belongingness needs are met. But God ultimately meets our belongingness needs. I think about Moses as a classic example of a shame-bound leader. He has a crisis of belongingness. He's living amongst a group of people who aren't really his people. In fact, they're not just really his people. They're the people who've been murdering his cohort. You know, they've been subjugating his cohort. He, he, the Egyptians have placed the people of Israel in, in bondage, in slavery, and in mistreatment. And he's un, trying to understand where do I belong? Am I a son of Egypt? Am I a prince of Egypt? Or am I the son of the Hebrews? Am I the leader of the Hebrews? Like, how is this belongingness going to be worked out in my life? And then he genuinely sins. He kills a man in anger. But if you think about it, Moses, as the prince of Egypt, could have killed anyone, pretty much, that he liked and wandered home and gone, hey, killed someone today. What are you going to do about it? You know, killed a slave driver today. Ultimately, slave drivers were just slaves, drivers of slaves. I killed a slave driver today but I'm a prince of Egypt, so what's going to happen? Of course, he's racked with guilt and shame, and he runs, because the natural thing to do when you're shame-bound is to run away, and then he hides in the desert for 40 years. That's a lot of hiding, and when God appears to him, he instructs him to go back to the place of his humiliation. You see, belongingness is wonderful but we fear rejection and ultimately humiliation. I don't wanna be cast out in public. I I don't wanna be kind of, I don't wanna do the big reveal on me. Hey, I dated you in like 1999 and you were not kind. It's the big reveal I'm terrified of. I'd rather not be in leadership than have my terrors revealed in public than be humiliated and dressed down in front of all these people. The first thing that Moses says, you know, you think if there's a burning bush, like you think of some really good things to say to it, seeing as God's speaking to you through it, you'd be like, hey God, almighty God, this is cool. I'm feeling the heat of God right now in this burning bush. Moses kind of looks over the burning bush and he says straight away, um, what if they don't believe me? You know, you think, come on, hold on a minute, God is just appearing to you in the burning bush. The first thing he says is, oh, but, but what if they don't believe me? What if, you think, it may be more reasonable to say, look, what if they kill me? I'm talking about going back to the Egyptians, like it's not been a good situation for us. What if they kill me? But, but he's not worried about death so much as he's worried about humiliation. And many of us in leadership are much more worried about humiliation than we are death. We think, oh, I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want to let the team down. I don't want to not be good enough. I don't want one you know, of those pastoral palms on the shoulder. Thanks so much, but, but please take a seat. Shame is fueled by our fear of humiliation and unbelonging. It, it reads in the text in Exodus 4 two. Then the Lord said to him, I think we've got well, this behind me. Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. Now I believe that these events really took place so don't misunderstand me but if we look at it slightly more metaphorically You think, firstly, that the one thing that a shepherd of 40 years would have known is not to pick up a snake by the tail. In fact, Moses actually does the first and most sensible thing where it comes to snake handling, and that is run away. But secondarily, when God says, reach out your hand and pick it up by the tail, he's telling him to do something this powerful and prophetic because he's telling him to allay his fears of being bitten and instead, in faith, pick up the one thing that he's really Terrified of, in a way that puts him at great risk. Shame is that snake. Shame makes us want to run away or to use a bare grills approach to bear, to snake handling, which is to kind of use a forked stick and hold it by the head. Control the head of the snake, and all will be well. But never pick up the snake by the tail. God says to Moses, "Do neither." pick it up by the tail, and the thing that you thought was going to destroy you will become your authority to lead the nations to freedom. The thing that you thought was going to destroy you will be the thing that you use to lead the nation to freedom. You know, there's no coincidences with God. He chooses this one thing, this snake, as the sign of shame and the staff as the sign of authority. Now, here is redemption of the story in the garden, that the thing that poisoned the people would become the thing that would lead the people to freedom. We're going to go on to that metaphor a little bit later as we move into the New Testament. So hold it there. Brené Brown says that shame, blame, disrespect, and the withholding of affection damage the roots from which love can grow. We've said and we've heard already from Nikki that this conference is all about the power of love in leadership. And so if you want to lead well, you have to be ready to fertilize and to feed the roots of love in your leadership. But as a shame-bound leader, it's hard to love. Because it's hard to love when we feel insecure and like we don't belong. And yet it's easy to love when we feel secure and like we belong. It's easy to love when you're in a relationship that's really working. It's harder to love when that relationship hits the rocks. It's easy for me to love my children when they're like, dad. It's harder when they're drawing on the walls with crayons. But knowing that you belong, knowing that you're in accordance with one another, in accordance with God, that's when the the power of love can overcome the love of power. It's that place of belonging. You know, leaders who manipulate Leaders who control, leaders who bully aren't naturally normally leaders who are controlling or bullying or manipulative. They're nearly always leaders who are bound by shame. They're terrified of revealing their weaknesses. They're terrified about leading out of humility because they think people will find them out. I need to look powerful because if I look powerful, people will respect me. You can look powerful and people might respect you, but you can be gentle and people will love you. That's a different sort of leadership. What are we looking for then? What are we looking to overcome? Because because the opposite of being shame-bound isn't being shameless. We we want to live more freely. We want to love more fully and we want to lead more authentically. And all of those things are available to us as we choose to challenge shame in our lives. For many people, shame or the fear of shame is the primary factor in decision-making I I, I need to make sure I I keep my guard up. Uh, For many people, they they are unable to love because they feel disconnected from who they really are. But we want to love more fully by being more authentically who we are. And we need to lead authentically out of who God's called us to be. Moses needed to be resolved with shame before he could lead the people of Israel out of slavery. He had to get over his identity crisis and recognize that he was called despite his sense of vulnerability and weakness, to actually take on one of the greatest challenges that the people of Israel had ever faced. God was with him as that authentic person. The opposite of shame isn't shamelessness, it's humility. Humus, the ground, it's about being rooted. I just want to be clear that many Christians use humility as a guise to hide their shame-bound nature. They, they say, oh, <clears throat> they're like the most humble person you've ever met. like They're like, oh, no, me last, me last. Oh, they're so humble. Let's applaud their humility. But actually, that isn't real humility. They deny their gifts, which humility doesn't do. Humility exists in God's perfect creation. Humility is about recognizing healthy boundaries. Humility is about acknowledging that we aren't the answer in ourselves. Humility is about being naked yet without shame. Humility is identifying and celebrating your individual nature as created by God. Humility is, though, not denying what God has called you to. But shame will steal that. Let's not hide behind false Christian humility. Let's instead acknowledge that we're called to humility, which both celebrates our gifts and recognizes our weaknesses. It doesn't deny our weaknesses and deny our gifts. And here are the three goals that we might attain to through this journey. That I might accept my limitations without shame. That I might welcome my uniqueness without shame. And that I might be uncovered without shame. Now we feel shame because we break boundaries. We we, we are boundary breakers. But God's called us to restoration. He said, actually, I want to restore my image in you today. I want you to step away from breaking boundaries into, into changing nations in my name. We have to accept our limitations, welcome our uniqueness, and lead out of vulnerability. And you know, these things are all reliant on God's unconditional grace for us. This is the amazing thing, that these things are, are too great for us to attain to in and of ourselves, but underpinned by God's unconditional grace in our lives, He's saying I want this for you accept your limitation as a leader recognize your uniqueness as a leader recognize and be vulnerable as a leader I'm ultimately with you It's hard to do that because shame drives mistrust into the promises of God Now as a Christian in leadership I find that in the quiet place I'm like yes Lord I believe that I'm your son I believe that I'm called to this great ministry. You now I'm ready to do the work of the kingdom. And suddenly you find yourself in the public arena and you're thinking, uh-oh, not me. I need to go and sit down. I ran through this talk with my connect group on Friday night. I said, guys, I'm really nervous about my talk for LC17. Can you give me some feedback? I'm in this great connect group with loads of leaders. So they're like, oh, I like that. Oh yeah, no, I don't like that bit. Oh, yeah, I wonder if that slide would be better there. Actually, maybe you should start with the end, and then and the be- be beginning goes to the end, and the end goes to the beginning. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, it 's terrible. I spend the next three days just sweating about it. I got up at five o'clock this morning to rewrite it because i 'm terrified. Am I really going to belong? Are you going to reject me? Is it going to bomb? But this is the thing. Shame drives mistrust into the promises of God. You know, in the Garden of Eden, the snake, he presses into the promise. He works his way in. God chose that snake for a reason. They kind of weedle their way into places they're not supposed to be. And he says in Genesis 3 verse 1, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's not like it's not that bold, right? If I was the snake, I'd go in and go, God says you can't eat from that. Uh, no, he didn't. God says you can eat from that. That's way too obvious. He says, did God really say? He sows the seed of mistrust into the promises of God. The snake makes boundary limitation an issue of humiliation from Adam and Eve. He's like, Oh, look, you're weak because you can't do that bit. You should do that anyway because that will show that you're really strong. The snake distorts the uniqueness of Adam and Eve. He says in verse 4 and 5, you will surely not die. He wants to sort of take away their uniqueness as human beings and then they want likeness with God as a result. And then paradoxically, the couple's attempt to be shameless and eat the apple ultimately leads them to be filled with shame, and the first thing they go and do is is cover themselves, because they're now naked, but they don't feel comfortable with their nakedness. Now, the pre-Tectonic root of the word shame is skem, which means literally covering. Like it's amazing how the enemy sows the seeds of mistrust in our leadership. Suddenly, we feel naked and ashamed, and we want to cover ourselves. And sometimes we can cover ourselves with money, sometimes we can cover ourselves with glory, sometimes we can cover ourselves with power, sometimes we can cover ourselves with administration. We can always find a way of covering ourselves, a way of hiding away from the people. But God's saying, don't lead like that, lead like this, lead authentically, lead vulnerably, don't hide. Now, leaders response to shame, well, the, the classic response to leader shame is to run and hide. As we've seen, Moses ran off into the desert for a long time. But obviously, as a leader, you can't really run away and still be the leader. So leaders have this remarkable gift of hiding in plain sight. Now, it's a gift that we can carry. We are geniuses at this. It's like, we are, we are amazing. Here I am, but I'm also not really here with you. Like, I look like I'm here. I look like I'm in the room. I look like I could be your friend. I look like I'm being vulnerable. But I just look like that. I'm not really like that. Because I'm not really on the stage right now, somebody else is. I'm just projecting a part of me that I want you to see. I want you to see that false self. I want you to see the acceptable bit. I don't want you to see me, because that would kind of be exposing and uncomfortable. Shame-bound leaders look present, appear transparent, and sound connected. But in reality, we're not emotionally present. We're a closed book, and we feel highly disconnected. The difficulty is, once we find ourselves in this position, the idea of revealing who we really are seems impossible. But I say seems, because it's not. It just takes courage. Jesus went to the cross not so that I would be buried alive with my shame, but so that I might be risen again with Him. I don't want to be buried alive, hiding behind the false self that I project into the public arena. I want to be really living. Best that I be rejected and live as I really am, than be accepted and not really be accepted at all. Authentic leadership demands us to step into our real selves on the real stage. What's going on in the psychological backroom? Well, Leary writes that the psychological system, we call the sociometer, which is a tongue twister, scans the social environment for clues relevant to one's relational value, the degree to which people regard their relationship with them, uh, the individual or, or, or the group. And in this way, we constantly assess whether or not we belong. Uh, the sociometer is a bit like a mirror. It would be useful if you could objectively read yourself through that mirror. But are mirrors ex- objective? No. Obviously, mirrors are benign, but the people who interpret the message that the mirror gives them are not benign. They're subjective. Now, we interpret the message through the mirror with our own position, with our own faulty estimation. Oh, I don't look so good today. Oh, I don't like the cut of this jacket or these trousers or, ooh, I kind of look a bit weird today. I'm not sure I'm really acceptable. The sociometer is, is the same mechanism turned outwards. You know, we really we read subtle social clues from individuals in the room. Oh, my goodness, they looked at me a bit funny. Oh, I don't think they like me. This is a hostile crowd. I want to get off the stage. It's not that you're projecting that on me, it's that I'm projecting that on you. And and I believe that the devil manipulates our sociometer to project back rejection to us 24-7. Because the devil wants us to be rejected, but Jesus has come so we might be accepted. And he wants you to know that you're loved in this room, that you're acceptable here, because he has made you acceptable. And he wants you to know that you're acceptable in the world. Even though the world hates you, the Lord loves you. That you've got a place of power on the world and you don't want to let your sociometer exclude you from what isn't true. Don't let that uh, devil, don't let that snake sneak in and whisper distrust into the promises of God over your life. Shame distorts our sociometer, and it hypersensitizes us to rejection and ridicule. You know, I worked with a woman in my last church who was a lovely woman. She was a powerful leader in the church. And one day during the peace, you know, we stood up and I had that classic Anglican moment. I was at the front, and I was sort of shaking hands with people around me. I didn't know, but she'd put out her hand towards me. And I'd shaken the hand of the person next to her, but I hadn't seen that she was actually putting out her hand to shake mine. And the piece kind of went, and she disappeared from the church for a month. And I remember kind of dialing up and thinking, oh, my goodness, where's she gone? Like, I haven't seen it. Has anyone seen her? For a, I've seen this lady? I haven't seen her for a couple of weeks now. And I called her up, and, and I said, look, you know, is there anything wrong? She said, um, she said, no, no, everything's fine. I said, well, look, come in, come in and have a coffee. Let's, let's catch up. So she came in and had a coffee, and she was clearly really upset. And I was saying, look, you know, there's clearly something wrong. Can you, can you tell me what's going on? She said, I just I feel so rejected from the church. I just feel like I just don't belong here. I said, well, is there any particular incident that's caused this sense of unbelonging? She said, yes! (laughs) During the peace, I put out my hand to shake yours and you blanked me. You just blanked me to my face. I thought, wow. I said, look, I'm so sorry. I just want you to know that I did not see you. That does not sound good. Now we've all been there. We interpret the clues in the world around us to fulfill the narrative that's in our minds and in leadership it will disempower and disable your leadership if you are looking for approval in the world around you because actually the world might give you approval but but if your sociometer is manipulated by Satan so you will not receive those messages of affirmation you'll never receive them anyway. And as a leader, if you're set up because you believe you're a fraud, you'll never be res- able to receive them because it's not your front of house that's receiving them anyway. You know, you're hiding in the background and go, everyone likes this guy, but no one really liked me. Everyone thinks this guy's a great leader or this woman's a great leader, but you know, that if they really knew what I'd like, they'd never be you know, involved with me. We are all fallen, all broken, but Christ has died for all of us to restore us to glory. If we don't deal with our shame. Our mission is diverted. We, we, we develop what we call a shadow mission. This is the young Anakin Skywalker, for those of you who are in the, not in the know. You know. And he casts a big shadow. He cast a shadow of Darth Vader. You know, he set out on a good road, but ultimately the mission he fulfilled was a bad mission because he hadn't dealt with the shame in his own heart. Overco- overcoming and the controlling power of shame in your life, it's not just good for you, it's essential for your leadership. Because if we capitulate to shame, we enact a different mission from the one God has for us. You know, I would preach not the gospel, I'd preach a message where everyone and go, oh, that's really nice, because I want you all to love me. So I think, oh, my shadow mission was to be, we'd have a massive love in I'm like a pastoral guy, we'd have Earl Grey tea and cake, we'd sit around, we wouldn't do any mission, we wouldn't do really any kind of discipleship or life change, we'd all kind of accommodate one another's massive problems and say it's all all right because we're all friends together, so let's have a great time. That's my shadow mission. I just want to make everyone go, oh that's lovely, oh that's so nice, oh great, oh will. so lovely. But my mission from God is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. It's to, it's to be a sharp sword. You know, it's to, it's to be faithful to the word of God. I, I must not be diverted from my true mission for the sake of my shadow mission. And yet shame would do that. Shame would say to you, oh, friend, you know what? You just need to be popular and then you've won. If you do popularity, that would be great. Oh, friend, you know, you just need a big bottom line. You, you get wealth, then, then it's all going to be good. Everyone will think, great. Or oh, oh, friend, you know, the healthcare thing's good, but it's just a vehicle to you receiving that OBA you really want. Now, what's your shadow mission? What is it that you're going after? Because your shadow mission will tell you a lot about your false self. For Moses, his shadow mission was becoming a shepherd to the Midianites. It's, it's crazy. 40 years in the desert herding sheep. Here's the guy who's supposed to be one of the greatest leaders of the people of Israel. He spends 40 years as a shepherd. 40 years fulfilling his shadow mission. Before God dealt with his shame, turned him around and set him back on the path to the mission he truly was called to. You know, this is true. Shame cannot survive being spoken. It cannot survive empathy. Shame cannot survive being spoken. You might still be saying, oh, Will, I really want some tools, you know, to deal with this. I need, you know, what's the five-step program that I undertake to kind of deal with my shame? Now, I, I am doing that at the front because I'm just doing a bit of what it is to undo shame. It's to begin to reveal who you really are in the public realm. It's not disempowering to a leadership. I'm not less of a leader because I've been vulnerable on the stage. I'm more of a leader because I'm more of who I am rather than who the projection of me might be. We are talking about shame. This is this call from Brené Brown. Shame cannot survive being spoken. It cannot survive Empathy. And empathy comes when we begin to share our shame stories with one another. We begin to say, hey, you know, my shame story is like this. I I was at a pre-LC17 party last night, and I found myself in a conversation with a friend. And he said, oh, what are you talking on tomorrow? I said, I'm talking about shame. He's like, ooh, I'm not sure if I go to get another drink or whether I stay in this conversation. He said, said, but what's your testimony? I said, well, you know, I, I think shame has often its roots in our childhood. He said, I agree with that. I said I was really badly bullied when I was in middle school. He said I know exactly how that feels. He said Were well, you debagged? I thought that's a that's a word I can't I can remember, and I can remember the pain of losing your clothes in that public arena, just being naked where everyone else is clothed, and I remember thinking, Wow, this is a God moment right now because I was uncovered and I felt ashamed. But the Lord wants to uncover us metaphorically today, and for us not to be ashamed. I remember that pain and that humiliation, and I know God wants to restore us from that. And many of you will have experienced things in your childhood or in your schooling or in your young professional life which have made you afraid of your unbelonging. They've made you fearful and shame bound, but God wants to gently reveal your heart today to say it's okay to be you. I've redeemed you, I've called you. I want you to pick up the snake by the tail. I want you to risk being bitten in the knowledge that you won't be bitten if you do it my way, if you trust in me. Don't control the head anymore by presenting your best foot forward. Don't run away anymore by undertaking your shadow mission, but engage in your true mission. Do it this way. You know, be bold. Step up, step through, step two. Your true mission and your true self together will be your true leader power. When you can combine your true mission with your true self, that's when you're really leading. Real power and leadership comes from the connection between the true self and the true mission. Moses spent 40 years in hiding before he spent 40 years in leading. And that change came about when he could face his shame, recognizing his vulnerability, but also recognizing the calling of God on his life. And I want you all to acknowledge and celebrate the calling of God in your lives today. True mission and true self in leadership means true power to lead. And you know, all of this ultimately came, comes down to the Christ of the cross. Jesus bore our shame so that we might share in his glory. Now in Numbers 21.9, Moses encounters the snake a second time. This time the snakes are biting the people. And God calls Moses to make a bronze snake and to lift it up. So rather than the eyes of the people being downcast on the ground, which was a sign of shame they would be lifted up into the heavens, which was a sign of glory. He, God had called them to move their eyes from the ground back to the heavens, so their eyes might be once again on the Lord. In Numbers 21.9, it says, so Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone who was bitten by a snake looked up at the bronze snake, they lived. But then, in John 3.14, it says, as Moses Lifting up the snake on the pole in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. God orchestrated this metaphor for shame so that our eyes might not be on the ground but they might be in the heavens, that we might turn our eyes off the ground and onto the King, that Christ for our shame so that we might share in his glory not that we might be shame bound in the church anymore it's not that we might be shame bound in our leadership anymore but so that we might share in his glory as leaders doing the work of the kingdom of god bible teacher derek prince summarized the 10 exchanges that resulted when jesus died on the cross firstly that jesus was punished for the sins we've committed that we might be forgiven that jesus was wounded for the sins we've committed that we might be healed that jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with his righteousness, that Jesus died our death that we might share his life, that Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing, that Jesus endured our spiritual poverty that we might share his spiritual abundance, that Jesus bore our shame that we might share in his glory, that Jesus endured our rejection that we might have his acceptance and belonging with the Father, that Jesus was cut off by death that we might be joined to God eternally. And that our old man or woman, who we were before we accepted Jesus, was put to death in him. That the new man or woman might come to life in us. That's the journey away from shame. That's the journey I want to welcome you to today. Let's just take a moment to pray. Lord Jesus, we believe that's true. We believe that you bore our shame so that we might share in your glory. And as Christian leaders today, we want to call you, Lord, to give us the determination, the strength, and the courage to pick up the snake of shame by the tail, trusting in your instruction to Moses, that this thing that blights us, this thing that afflicts us might instead become a staff in our hands. It might be the story of our authority that we might lead with integrity and courage. We pray, Lord, for your church, that we might lead as our true selves with the true mission that you've appointed us to. That real power would come upon us as we seek to serve you in this way. We thank you again for your forgiveness, for the cleansing that you offer through the blood that you shed for us, that we might be liberated from guilt and shame once and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd love to invite my friend Catherine Welby-Roberts to come and join me on the stage. We're going to just spend a little bit of time chatting together, and then uh, we're going to have a time for some questions uh, from the floor. So I'd love you just to um, give Catherine a really warm welcome. <clears throat> Catherine, it's great to have you here. Um, Thanks for doing this. Me and Catherine do quite a lot of work together where mental emotional health is concerned. So we've this is not kind of brand new. Well, it's a brand new interview, isn't it? But it's, um, it's a
1: brand new interview.
0: It's brand new. It's great to have you here, Catherine. Just just introduce yourself um, in terms of what you what you do currently.
1: Um, <laughs> currently, I, I don't do very much. I'm a mum. That means you do an awful lot. <laughs> I do an awful lot. I don't do much <laughs> other than that. Um, but. Um, I suppose what I do when I'm not doing that is I talk about, um, you know, all the things that no one likes to talk about, about themselves, about myself, and lay myself bare because
0: <laughs> Great. I'm that so
1: kind of we're on of the person. same
0: path. <laughs> <laughs> and how would you describe your relationship with shame?
1: Um, I think if you're using relationship, um, which is actually quite a nice way of putting it, you know, I'm the person who'd quite happily walk away from the shame and it's it's the nagger that's like hi 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 um you know why did you say that why did why did you do that that you no, no you shouldn't have done that and it's it's kind of this constant companion that's always there reminding you of everything that you're not um and everything that you you shouldn't be and i think for me it kind of plays out most clearly i suppose. Um, in two ways and I say uh, the first would be I call it replay and it's that thing uh, I don't know if anyone else gets this <laughs> I hope so <laughs> it's not just me um, <laughs> where you go somewhere you do an event I'll do this this evening when I get home <laughs> I'll be like I shouldn't have said that oh my days I shouldn't have said that and, and you think about this conversation you've had and you think about what you said and then, then you realise that, that you're, you're probably horrible you're, you're definitely stupid um, you're you're basically everything that's wrong with the world, and you should never go out ever again. Um, and and you know no one should ever speak to you, and you you really shouldn't have friends. Um, so you know that that's one way that shame really loves to play in my life. And um, another would be that that kind of thing where you do something and, and you realize, you know, it all just becomes this huge thing. So I. i I define this one by i call it banana bread gate um where
0: banana bread gate
1: banana bread gate right um yeah i i was pregnant last year and i was quite ill with my pregnancy i couldn't do much i became quite housebound and i decided one day in a fit of energy i'd bake my husband some banana bread because he did so much for me he was my carer He, he was so i thought i'd bake him banana bread i don't like banana bread he likes banana bread So I baked the banana bread. It was exhausting. It made me feel very, very ill and very, very tired. And I turned the tin upside down and and it it just disintegrated. And so I promptly disintegrated too. I I literally ran out of the room screaming hysterically. Uh, Mike comes into the room and is like, what's happened? I'm like, the banana bread all wrong. I'm a useless wife. I'm a failure. You shouldn't have married me. Why do you love me? What's wrong with you? Um. You know, uh, um. Um. He kind of <laughs> went into the kitchen and tidied up the banana bread, and then was like, "It's okay." And I was like, "No." I spent the rest of the day and the next morning telling him that he shouldn't have married me. And, and you know that that yeah. is that is shame in my yeah. life.
0: Catherine, I'm. Not sure everyone would know here, but your, your dad's relatively famous. Do you want to just introduce him? <laughs> no. no. Um, we, we, we like him, just to be clear. We like him a lot.
1: <laughs> yes, my father is the Archbishop of Canterbury.
0: So, yeah. He's very important. And um, he is very... <laughs> he is, I, I'm actually employed by him. So I just want to say, for the record, he's very important. He's a very nice guy.
1: Anyone who doesn't know him, he likes silly hats and dresses. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, anyway, moving swiftly on with this interview. Um, s- still loving the Ankin church, Catherine. Being a priest, let's keep nodding. Um, so th- th- this experience of fraudulence that I talked about in, in, the, in, in the material just now, is that something you connect with? Because your voice um, in the sort of arena of mental emotional health kind of was largely propagated out of some early tweets you sent, including one of your dad, Were well, you wearing a tea cosy Which was rather like a mitre, which went viral. Do you want to say a bit about that? (laughs) Let's not go into the tea cozy thing. Let's stay with the fraudulence.
1: I I, I did. Just to clarify, I posted the T-cozy before my dad became the Archbishop of Canterbury, and I probably wouldn't have stated that I was the first woman bishop just before a major vote went wrong to do with women bishops. If I'd have known that, anyway, that That was was a whole other story.
0: That was definitely a shame moment there.
1: <laughs> yes, that was... That was
0: yeah, that, oops. Um, so the, fraud, the fraudulence thing. Yeah, the
1: fraudulence thing. Um, yes, essentially, as <laughs> mentioned, my father is the Archbishop of Canterbury and um, I am the idiot daughter who tweets stupid things in the early days and gets attention and then thinks, oh, <laughs> this is fun... Um, And then, you know, starts talking about stuff that's, you know, not normally talked about, my mental health. And and everyone's like, ooh. And then I got invited to speak at things and all of that. And I think the fraudulence thing for me comes most significantly in the fact that, you know, I started speaking out about my mental health before I was married. I was Catherine Welby, so when I got married... Um, I'd done quite a bit of writing and and speaking as Catherine Welby, so I was like, oh, I'll just be Catherine Welby Roberts. And um, now I'm just like, well, you know, if I'd have gone for Catherine Roberts, I'd probably never get invited to speak anywhere because, you know, I wouldn't have the well be. (laughs) I don't know why it's not in inverted commas, but, you know, um, I wouldn't be a well be anymore, and, and, you know, that's why people want me to speak. You know, it's it's not because I have something to give. It's because, you know, they're secretly hoping that the Archbishop of Canterbury is pretending to be a woman or something. I don't know. (laughs) Um, He's going to show up. Um, So, yeah, fraudulence is a constant
0: thing. And if you had a shadow mission, would you be able to identify what it would be
1: <laughs> I, I love that phrase it makes me think of james bond um,
0: it's, it's not a james bond-esque kind of shadow no show. it's
1: not um, which is very disappointing <laughs> sorry but um, no i think for me um, the word authentic is used a lot um now in the church, it's it's quite a buzzword. And you hear a lot of people saying, we want to do an authentic mission. We want to be authentic. You've used it today and you've used it Sorry. properly and effectively. I okay, like thanks. it now. I'm, I'm, I'm on board with you. But, um, you know, it's become this word which essentially describes that shadow mission thing. You know, people people say I want to be authentic and and they are authentic. They go onto the stage and they are vulnerable but they're not actually, like you say, sharing something of themselves. And I think for me, my great fear that my shadow mission could become or or the thing I'm most afraid of is that I will start to do that. I'll start to do this this cool authenticity where I'm very together and I I am presenting a very acceptable front and I, I am... You know, I'm coolly mentally ill, okay. and I'm uh, acceptably mentally ill, and I'm basically not a complete bumbling mess most of the time. And I'm, a, you know, and so I think for me, sometimes I slip into that, and sometimes I'm like, actually, I, it's the thing I fear, and I think it's the thing that is most likely to, to derail me.
0: When you first started blogging about mental health, you, you had you, you, you sort of you, you put out a piece on your own blog, and it went sort of viral around the world. Thousands and thousands of people have read it. How did that affect your? Did you have a shame experience related to it? Or did you feel? Did that make you feel like running or hiding?
1: Um, <laughs> no. Well, no. I essentially. I'm that person who kind of goes, don't look, don't look, jump, and then goes, oops. (laughs) So it took me a while. It took me a year, maybe two, to realize that doing that, actually, I did it at a time when I probably shouldn't have, and it actually made me really quite ill, Um, but it took a while for me to realize that during that period when I'd first started speaking about my mental health and when... You know, people had started me asking me to do stuff in response to that blog, um, where I really did overshare, and and the shame came in as I began to realise how much of myself I'd exposed, and and how much of myself I'd let people see. When actually, you know, I don't want them to see everything, um, yeah. and so I think the shame kind of snuck in gradually and quietly. And at the time, I just I hadn't really thought about it. I just sort of did it.
0: So shame. An antidote to shame isn't oversharing. No. It's about being present and authentic in in your own expression of yourself.
1: It's about owning your boundaries, acknowledging your boundaries, and speaking your boundaries. You know, like somebody who who isn't publicly or or, or even amongst close friends very vulnerable, but says, "I'm I'm not going to." talk about that then everyone knows that they are being authentic they are telling you exactly what their boundaries are and you know you know what that is you don't have to be excessively vulnerable to be authentic you just have to be honest about what you're hiding
0: how has your faith helped you manage shame and recover from that uh, experience of being shame bound
1: i think it still is um i think it's it's one of those kind of very slow processes. You know, you become, it becomes such a habit to believe that you are everything that people will hate and that you are um, unacceptable um, and, a, and a complete fraud. And I think. Um, that it, it just takes, it's taken me years and I'm getting to a point now where I can begin to see that actually there's so many lies that have bound me and that still do, but at least I'm starting to acknowledge that they're lies and I'm beginning to kind of be able to recognize through the Bible um, the truths that there are um, and where those lies have kind of become become a truth that I've believed, and so I think the faith thing is, you know, it's just that ongoing journey. God's just walking alongside, kind of going, mm-hmm, not sure that's true. Maybe not. Maybe just have a look at this. Mm. And and you know, I think He'll just continually do that. I haven't had that thing where God came in and stripped my shame away. I'd love it if it happened, but um, yeah, it's a journey.
0: Yeah, it's great. Thanks. <laughs> You, you're, um, you've been brilliant. I mean, if you don't follow Catherine Welby's blog, I really encourage you to do that. It's, it's really, Roberts. It's really Welby Roberts, obviously. <laughs> Mike. Right up to Mike. Um, just just say a bit about how sharing your shame story has actually encouraged others, because you know, you've had contacts from all around the world, haven't you, from people who feel shame-bound.
1: Yeah, and I think... Um, yeah, I've had loads, loads of emails, loads of messages... Um, from all sorts of people. And I had never really realized how unusual it is to find it very easy to talk about yourself to complete strangers um, because I just seemed to do it. And I suddenly was aware that all of these people were able to speak to somebody that they knew because I had spoken um, and I was called brave and whatever and actually for me it wasn't, it wasn't all that brave, you know, and it, it was just me being a bit of an oversharer, but for other people it, it becomes this huge thing and, and so it's a real encouragement to be able to encourage others to, to do that and, you know, I've had, you know, I'm, I've made friends with people all over the place through Twitter, through email some people who I, I meet up with now and where you're able to talk through some of these things and, and you know, you're sharing a journey. And so I've got some friends where they're further along the journey than me and I, I'm mentoring some people who are further back on the journey than me. And you're able to just kind of talk through how some of these lies foster, but that's come from the fact that I shared.
0: And if there's encouragements here for this group today, what would your parting shot be as far as... Um, picking up the snake of shame is concerned. What would you? What would your sort of takeaways be in terms of encouragement?
1: What of how to pick up your snake? Yeah, That's a
0: very what good have
1: question. What would you found
0: helpful in terms of? <laughs> what would you? What would you? For leaders here in the room who maybe like you are in the public eye, what would your sort of encouragement be in terms of dealing with shame?
1: I think talking is is the best cure. and, and however that might manifest is, is kind of entirely a personal choice. But I think the, the thing of putting on a front to lead um, is something that needs to be addressed and that needs to be thought about. And it's not about saying, right, I'm suddenly going to bear my soul to my entire congregation because that wouldn't necessarily be healthy boundaries. And but But it's about starting to recognize where, these things have become rooted and how deep they might have gone so spotting something that might be a symptom of a, of a deeper problem and saying oh, I'm just going gonna, gonna to look at the symptom and start there but not expecting to suddenly, suddenly be released, some people are and I think that's glorious for them but you know for me I just am quite enjoying actually, I, I, I've been writing this book in this last year and And that has basically been me writing my shame story, essentially. And through doing that, I've actually come to a point where I feel more relaxed. I feel more confident. I feel bolder. I don't feel that I need to be called a leader or or be seen as important. I I feel more relaxed in myself. And so I think going through that journey of just actually looking at yourself honestly in partnership with somebody else... Um, and doing it over a period of time. That I don't know if that's any useful. That's that. really
0: helpful. That's really helpful. Catherine Webber Robs, everyone, let's uh, give a massive round of applause. Great. Well, we'd love you to take some questions from the floor now. Um, we've got about, I think, about twenty minutes to do that. So if you have a question, um, we would love you to. Put up your hands um, and someone with a microphone will run towards you. And we'd love to answer questions about this topic, but also uh, around the general mental health conversation in the church as well. If that's something you would like us to approach, we'd love to do that. I'll keep on filling until someone puts their hand in the air, otherwise there'll be an awkward silence and we'll feel shamed. Uh, Oh yes, there's a lady here at the front, she took the bait. Thank you so much. Hello, my name's Corinne. Hello Corinne.
1: Um, I was wondering, uh, you were talking about there is something like oversharing, but also undersharing. So how do you discern uh, where something, in what category something would fall?
0: Well, actually, oversharing can be a way of expressing our shame too. So oversharing is like being unboundaried. Remember what I said earlier about humility. Humility recognizes our needs as well as our gifts. And boundaries were that Edenic experience of saying God saying actually there is a boundary for you to adhere to so having boundaries in terms of sharing is about saying I'm sharing what's appropriate I'm not oversharing because I'm not wanting to elicit a response from this community that's going to fix me Jesus is doing that work of fixing I think for Catherine and I it's probably recognizing that we have safe confident people who we share our deep inner life with and then in the public arena we share authentically what we think is appropriate. There's a difference between having a false self and basically hardlining a different personality where you feel disconnected, and actually being honest about how far you want to share, but what you do share comes out of who you really are.
1: Yeah, and also I think it's entirely individual. Some people will share a lot more than others, and that doesn't mean that one person's overshared and one person's undershared. You know, it's, I think it is just, you know, it is about knowing what what your personal boundaries are and where you feel relaxed. And you know when you've overshared in an unhealthy way because you feel um, unhealthy. Mm -hmm. You feel exposed in a way that isn't necessarily good. Um, And um, it makes you more vulnerable than you need to be. And you know when you've undershared because actually, again, you feel like you could have said more. You You could have provided more. So I think but it is an entirely unique and individual thing.
0: I think as well, if, if there are five people who you know really well and who, who know you really well in a, in, a, in a setting where you're leading, and they're like, oh my goodness, I don't even know this person, and they say to you, wow, you, you seem really different, then, then you know there's probably a problem. Um, my wife's often my greatest critic and friend, and if she's hearing me preaching, and she feels like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of running out of my false self, she'll be like, I don't think he turned up today. Um, yeah, it's harsh. Um, but it's uh, but it's it's chastening because actually you've got to it's actually I, I, the Lord wants me to turn up and actually that means being bold and courageous and, and picking it up and saying yeah I'm le- I'm leading today great another question yeah there's there's, there's, plenty, there's a hand there at the back yeah thanks so much great welcome to you thanks uh, I'm uh, Jakub from the Czech Republic
1: and my question kind of follows on the previous one about oversharing, undersharing, because yeah. I think for many leaders, there are some sins that they struggle with long-term. Yeah. Some sins are kind of easier to admit, like I'm prone to anger.
0: Some sins are a little bit harder to admit, like I'm prone to pornography. Sure. Uh, yeah. Again, is there any kind of guidance? What should a leader be admitting and what not? Yeah, I mean, obviously, for those people in business, if you set up a business meeting and said, hi, everyone, I'm addicted to pornography, uh, there might be a problem in the business arena. So it's about understanding this, the, the appropriate setting for sharing. Uh, the thing about shame is shame would say you can't share who you are in any setting and that to be appropriate. You know, it, shame says if anyone found out what you're really like, then you're not welcome here. Um, but, 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 but health, a healthy, humble approach is about acknowledging where you need help and going to the right place for that help. So if you're sick, you go to a doctor. If you're, if you're addicted, you need to go and work with a group of addiction specialists. Interestingly, we work in addictions here at HCB, We have a recovery course. The recovery course gathers a group of people who are struggling with addictions, and they spend time sharing their struggles with addiction in an open and vulnerable way. You don't get anywhere on the program if you work out your false self, because you're going, yeah, fine, no problem with addictions here. Totally doing, absolutely fine. I'm not even sure why I'm here. That's not a way to recovery. The 12 steps works by standing up and saying, hi, I'm John, I've got a problem with addiction, this is my problem. That vulnerability, that honesty helps you to make progress. But, but it's safe in that setting, but it's not necessarily safe in the business, in the business setting or in the classroom or in the, in, in, the, in the chapel. So it's about asking yourself the question, is there a place where I can authentically be me and recognise my belongingness value as being met? leading out of your false self is saying actually i am created a whole persona and I'm leading out of that persona and no one's going to get close to me and some people would say you know, that, that even penetrates their family life to even the people who know them the best still feel that they're working, trying to work through a screen, so that's the thing, think about the context and the appropriateness of context yep, this lady at the front great, we got, we, we're zooming around this microphone, this guy's going to get super fit during the uh, course of this exercise
1: Hi, sorry, I just want to say thank you to Catherine it was really good to get a realness which you bring. Um, I guess from a cautionary note, I've come out of a point of doing the shadow mission for too long and ended up flipping exhausted um, and on the floor. I guess it's the tools, you, any tools or, or ways you c- we can approach relearning the way we then go forward, because I think too, it's too easy to fall back into the shame shame way. I'm praying for what you're, you know that for the healing to come but at the moment it's the relearning process um, yeah I think I have just started working again having had a baby and have had the last six months not not speaking and I, I've suddenly started doing stuff again in the last month and gone "Oh, <laughs> this costs quite a lot and I hadn't fully registered when I was doing loads before how much how much it took out of me and I think as a result of that actually you know the ways that I'm operating now is is taking on less, working out where what I've got to share will be most valuable and where actually it's just I want to be seen by people to be important and saying no to those things. Um and through that caring for myself because if I don't care for myself then I'll crash and then I'll stop sharing altogether and actually I think that this is what God's called me to do and so I need to care for myself in order to be able to fulfil that so just not like for me oversharing is not doing too many events and is knowing my limits, knowing my boundaries, knowing when to stop um, and, and being able and having the courage to say no
0: I think it's well with your shadow mission your, your true mission is nearly only five degrees away from your shadow mission so it's not like you have to stop the boat and kind of get off and go back to the dock and start all over again it's about actually bringing your shadow mission out of its shadow place into its true place so for me preaching the gospel is only five degrees away from trying to make people like me because actually the good news of Jesus is that actually it's good news why wouldn't you like it? So I've just got to get the focus off of me and put the focus off of him. And actually, that's just a journey. That's a, that's a, that's a journey of, of five degrees. It's not about parking the whole thing. And what I'd encourage everyone to do here is not sort of say, all right, okay, everything's broken, right? I'm stopping everything now. Uh, like, I've obviously got a shame problem. I need to, like, completely reset the clock. You know, you need to pump out the basement, but you don't stop the work upstairs. And, and, it's, a, and it's actually a perpetual experience. You will go through phases where you feel more vulnerable than others and phases where it feels less okay to be yourself than others. And, and so it's a, it's a constant work. And I think it's also a prophetic and prayerful work. And I, I find working with a couple of prophetic friends and saying, guys, speak into my life. When, I, when I'm dealing out of my shadow mission, that feels super uncomfortable. You're like, Mr. Prophecy, stay away from me. I don't want you to know what's really going on in here. But when I'm like open and actually working out of who I really am, I'm like, bring it. I want to know what God's got to say to me, you know, speak words of encouragement over my life and and challenge me if there's something you believe God is saying to me. So ask yourself how comfortable you are with a prophetic. Be accountable to a small group of people. Pray for one another. And and then you can hold one another to account. A leader who's in account is a leader who's ultimately going to be effective. A leader who's kind of a lone ranger is likely to go off track and start bending to their shadow mission or or building a stronger false self. Great. We've got time for a couple more. Yeah, this lady over here just uh, midway through. Thanks so much. Hello. Hello. Is dealing with regret... Um, regret of major things that happened in one's life, um, and you don't have shame as a result, but just dealing with regret. Do you go through the same kind of sharing on that matter? Well, re- regrets a really interesting concept. I mean, regret wouldn't be classified as regret; it would be classified as guilt or shame. Shame is uh, guilt is is a sense of regret about our acts. Shame is a sense of regret about ourselves. So if you're struggling with letting go of stuff that you've been forgiven for from the past, that would fall more in the guilt zone. If you're recriminating yourself because you're a terrible person because of those guilt-laden acts, then that's a shame zone activity. Many people who are struggling with historic guilt are actually struggling with what we call false guilt. So their guilt has become a shame-bound identity. It's become a sort of perpetual experience where you find yourself defaulting to the thing that you did 20 years ago that sort of still haunts you today. This is when you call up God and ask him to fish out of the deepest part of the sea, the thing that you told him about 30 years ago, and then you try and remind him about that thing so you can ask him for forgiveness about that thing again, so he can then drop it back into the sea, only for the next day for him to go and collect it again, remind you of it, ask you to forgive him for it, and then drop it back in the sea again. God's getting pretty fed up with that narrative, although he's infinitely gracious and patient. The key thing is what you need to do is address the false guilt and actually say, I don't need to deal, I don't need to live in regret anymore because I'm a new creation in Christ, therefore I can live free. Um, So I would look at the guilt-based tools if it's a guilt-based issue, but if it's, um, again, the guilt book is in the notes here, you can have a look at that. That's all around that issue of false guilt and how to deal with it, and there's very clear steps that you can undertake, spiritual and psychological, to help get free. Great. Uh, Yes, a question here at the gentleman at the front. Related to the question previously, I was wondering that how much you can control the way of healing out from shame. Uh, and as you mentioned, the uh, the example of Moses with the snake. I wonder that if God appeared in the burning bush to help him deal with his shame, uh, it's uh, interesting that he waited 40 years with it. And um, so I... Sometimes I wonder that how much can I help myself at all if God is not appearing and, and, and makes a very strong move? Yeah, that's a great question, my friend, but I would say that God has already appeared and already made a very strong move, and that that strong move was actually on the cross. So whilst Moses waited 40 years for, for, for the for the revelation through the burning bush, that Jesus appearing that... that uh, that revelation from, from John that, that the Son of Man had to be lifted up it is, is the revelation that we need. That's the burning bush moment for us to be liberated from our shame. That actually, it, it, where th- with Moses, there was work he needed to do very practically. For us, there's work that we need to acknowledge very spiritually. It's actually that Jesus has come in order that we might be liberated from shame. But he's done, a, he's done a, a already a cataclysmic work in the supernatural to set us free from the power of shame by overcoming the snake. For us, it's acknowledging what he's already done and putting that into practice in our lives that will make that real. Unfortunately, as long as we live behind the facade, we're not really making it real by living it out. And my encouragement today is about actually doing it, actually picking up, if you like, the snake by the tail is saying, actually, shame has an impact on my life. And I want it not to be something I run away from or hide from or control, but I want to actually use it as a demonstration of my authority to lead. And it's that whole thing about my power is made perfect in weakness. John Wimber said, never trust a leader who doesn't walk with a limp. So there's something in that vulnerability and leadership about authenticity and leadership that is power. And that is power against the lies of Satan, which actually they're, they're the lies that uh, impact the promises that God's made over us we need to stand against those spiritually and practically in order that we can take hold of the shame-free lives that we've been offered through the blood of Christ and I think there's real power and um, me and my wife we we have to just pray the blood of Christ over one another we say I want, to, I want to be free from from shame because the blood of Christ covers you and if you want to take a spiritual tool away from this the, the blood of Christ is what covers our shame and makes us clean. We're washed in His blood. So I find those 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 are really fantastic prayers to pray over one another, and but take the crucifixion as as the necessary move of God to liberate us from the shame that we feel.
1: Yeah, I often feel like God hasn't shown up too. So, um, like, I agree entirely. I love it as when what? this
0: is this is why we work together. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And Catherine's like, yeah, I feel like that as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but like I, I mean I agree with everything Will said. I just find it very hard to to believe a lot of the time that 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 actually that's the way it is. And I think, you know, I pray that stuff and it doesn't really often feel like it makes much of a difference. But I trust in what the Bible says, which is that it does, which is a really difficult kind of tension. to to live in because you've got to believe essentially in what you can't feel and in what doesn't seem real um, and trust in that and for me it's just a a battle that we live out and hope that one day the the truth will start to feel real so that
0: would be my answer that's that's a really great response and I think persistence in all this what we said about the the basement pumping it out is persistent journey I think we just take one more question we're going to just have enough time just to to pray a little bit. There's just a gentleman here. We've got um, this couple. There's a uh, question here in that corner. We can just head over there this way. Where? Just on that side. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, my name is Francis. I'm from Washington D.C. Uh, just a quick question. So I understand the spiritual aspect of it. Jesus, you know, he di- he died on the cross. And he, he's the one he healed, who heals, but uh, you also mentioned about the pra- uh, practical aspect. So the question is, um, in reality, I mean, it's in reality the shame doesn't go away. I mean, it's a constant battle. So on the days when we do feel shame, do we just just suck it and just push it through, or like, is there like a, or yeah. do we just... So so it's a spiritual and a practical battle and I would say that remember what we said about the sociometer about your internal interpretation of the clues in the world around you which challenge your sense of belonging. So from a, psycholog- from a more psychological perspective, you'll be actually doing what we call making new appraisals. So new appraisal making actually changes your neurochemistry. It helps to rewire the way in which your brain's working. It makes it much more diffuse rather than more hardline. And so what you do is you play with the idea. So you, you sense rejection and shame. Maybe someone looks at you funny on the, on the, on the metro, and you think, oh, this, this guy thinks I'm an idiot. So then you, you take that idea. You go, okay, so this guy thinks I'm an idiot. Maybe I am an idiot. Chances of probability of that's maybe like... 50%. Maybe he just like looked at me funny because he saw my cap was on backwards. He thought, hey, I, maybe I'd I wear a cap like that backwards. Probability of that, maybe is 30%. Okay, maybe this guy's having a bad day and he's looking at me funny. He's thinking, hey, he's a funny guy. Like I've had a bad day. I just want to be unpleasant to someone. So I'm looking at you. Probability of that is about 80%. So you run through all these different appraisals about how other people are perceiving you, but also how you're perceiving other people. And actually that changes the way in which you view yourself. And just by making new appraisals, You actually feel differently. So rather than getting off of the metro in America and feeling bad because you feel like people are looking at you and judging you, you think, oh, actually, there's a load of different reasons why these people might look at me in this particular way, and they don't all end up in me being a bad person. Like making new appraisals is just a simple psychological tool you can use every day to question whether or not the snake is telling you the truth. What you need to do is actually address the lies, and I think... The whole suck it in, I'm just going to suffer this is just to say, well, the lies can just keep coming. I'm just going to have to endure them. But you can challenge the lies with the truth. And like you're called to do that every day. That's an ongoing journey. Like the enemy is not going to let up in that battle, but you can challenge those lies every day with the truth. And you can speak scripture over your life. You can speak the promises of God over your life, you can speak the sonship of Jesus over your life, you can claim what's actually true for you in the spiritual realm, and also make practical steps, humanly speaking, to actually question whether or not your sociometer is actually telling you what's true in the world around you, or whether it's distorted by your own shame. So there's some practical things you can actually do.
1: And I think for me as well, um, I'm an external processor and um, I've just been going through CBT which is cognitive behavioural therapy and one of the things is actually that they just call it evidence based but um, I find that I struggle to do that in my own head and, and with shame as was quoted from Brené Brown you know when you speak it out actually it has much less power and for me when I feel really ashamed of something when I'm having a really bad day and that's just overwhelming you know I'll, I'll talk, talk to, my husband is the one that I talk to but you know I'll, I'll Talk about it with him, and I'll find the evidence with him, and I'll work out how likely it is that that lie is a reality. And sometimes, you know, there's an element of truth in something that you feel ashamed about, and that just gives it more power. But actually, then owning the, the truth in it with the lie that's also in it helps to negate it a bit. And for me, that practical step of actually having that conversation. And, and speaking out and saying today I'm feeling really ashamed about this and, and you know I've been feeling this for the last few weeks and it's just not going away you know it's when you speak about it and you, and you have that conversation I mean that, that's the way I do it because if I try and do the evidence based or the appraisal thing in my head then it ends in disaster because I'm like no that's 100% likely um, <laughs> so I, I do it out loud
0: Another good tool you can use is what we call the shame capsule technique, where if you allow the lies to roll around your head all day, they kind of tend to get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more self-affirming. But if you, if you capsule 15 minutes a day to basically deal with your shame narrative you basically decide to put in your capsule any thoughts that come into your mind during the day like I'm worthless, I'm hopeless, I'm disgusting, I'm useless you, you maybe put them in your shame capsule you say I'm going to address that for 15 minutes at the end of the day so between 5.15 and 5.45 or, whatever, or 5, 5.15 and 5.30 whatever time works for you you basically will look at that shame capsule and you'll be like yeah yeah this is the things I've said about myself today Da da da, da, da. go through them all, listen to them, address them sit in them for a bit, pray over them at the end and then leave it Now, weirdly, the next day, when you do the same thing, as long as you promise yourself that you're gonna do your shame capsule time of 15 minutes, your brain will let up on actually regurgitating those lies all the time because it feels kind of affirmed that its needs are gonna be met. So the thing that feels very threatening, the sense that you don't belong, is actually being addressed, but it's being redressed in a specific period of time. That way, if you're really struggling with a shame narrative that just keeps running through your head all day long, you can get a whole lot of peace for some sort of 90% of the day, by just having the shame capsule that you would you address at the same time every day, talk it through, think about it, address it, write it down, and actually work with the capsule itself. So it, there's another tool you can take away from today. Great, we're going we're to just pray. Um, this session ends in just a few minutes, but I, I know there might be a folk here who would like some prayer as well. So I'd love to invite you just to stand for a moment. We just, want to, we just want to really finish this session well, and I think finish this session while is finishing with the Lord, uh, in, in asking for power to come. So just invite you to open your hands, just for a few minutes. We've got five minutes here, just saying to the Lord, I'm going to give you these five minutes, Lord. I'm not going to rush away from your presence. I, w- I, want, to, I want to be with you right now. So invite the Holy Spirit right now to come. Holy Spirit, we want to welcome you right now into this place. We're opening our hands to you as your children. We are inheritors of the kingdom of God. And Lord, we know that you've made us worthy. And so we invite your Holy Spirit to just come and touch us in a special measure today. And we know we're worth it. Despite what shame would say, we are worth it because you long to give good gifts to those who love and fear you. Come, Holy Spirit, in my life where I've been bound by shame, come and set this prisoner free. Come, Holy Spirit. I just really believe that the the Lord is just releasing words to each of you uh, right now. And they're words that come against the power of shame. The Lord is speaking words of love and affirmation over your life. And for some of you, there's a great battle that's just started where you want to refute the words of the Lord. But I just invite you spiritually just to receive them. Say, God, I receive that word. I receive the word that I am made worthy. I receive the word that I'm a child of God. I receive the word that I'm clean. I receive the word that I'm made holy. I receive the word that you have plans and purposes for my life. I receive the word that you have a true mission for me. I receive the word that I can be who I am in the public square. Come Holy Spirit. We receive those words, and we pray, Lord, you make them true in our deepest place. I just welcome the Spirit again for courage. Those of you who are just waiting on the Lord, maybe you sense that there is that shadow mission you've been fulfilling. Or maybe you feel that you've been operating out of that false self. And just ask the Lord for his compassion, for his redirecting right now. And just say, Father, what would it be to pick up the snake by the tail for me? What would it look like for me to pick up that snake by the tail? How can this shame become my authority because you've redeemed it? Because you've called me because you're gonna redeem it now and you're gonna use it so I fulfill the mission you've called me to. presence of the Lord is here presence of the Lord is here try not to overthink it just say more Lord more of you I would love to make some space for anyone who just feels you know what I'd like to I want to come forward I want to receive prayer this is This may feel very exposing. You might feel like, oh my goodness, I'm coming as one who feels like they're bound by shame. If you'd like that, maybe that's a statement you want to make today. That's maybe the first statement of walking back to your Egypt and saying, I'm I'm ready to be humiliated for the gospel. I'm ready. I'm okay about that. If that's you, I'd love you just to come now. We're going to have some people just to lay hands on you, to pray for you. Men with men, women with women. We want to bless you. We want to anoint you. We want just God to just make this day a day of liberation for your life. If we could get some of those who are equipped to pray, we know that anyone who's on team here would love you to come and pray. If there's any leaders here who just want to bless other people, you're ready to pray. We'd love you just to come and stand with one of these people at the front right now. We just want you to bless them. Just keep coming. It's fine. There's plenty of space. We'll make a holy huddle at the front here. We're just going to pray. Just open your hands if you're here at the front. You'd say, yeah, this is me. This is just my statement right now that I'm going to pick up this snake by the tail and I'm not going to live bound by this anymore. Maybe you feel some fury in your heart. You're like, yeah, I've done this for too long. Today I want to be set free. If you're in the balconies, you can just run on down or maybe you want to ask someone near you upstairs. You just want to say, can you just pray for me? I want to be that person. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, we want more for every person who's making this declaration today that they want to be set free from shame. Every person who's stepping out of the aisles right now, too many to count, Lord, who are longing to run to you who want to be liberated and now want a new authority to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. More of your power. You can keep coming or if you just want to come and pray for some of these folk, you're really welcome to do that. We're going to just spend some time coming around them, it's going to take some time for us to pray for everyone here so I'm going to officially end the session and just don't, don't rush just stay where you are if you want to receive prayer but if you do want to slip away then you're really welcome to see there's a break time now and then we're back in the in, in, in this session or back over at um, the Albert Hall a little later on but if you want to slip away do that, if you're ready to pray keep praying, if you can come and pray for some folks that would be fantastic Bless you all. have a fantastic day. Thanks for being here. Keep picking up the snake and uh, we're going to see the church change. Let's pray if you're ready to pray, let's keep praying right now. You run towards me with love and mercy Lord.